Oh, the other graphic didn't show. There it is. <laughs> Tried to start the graphic right away. It didn't. It didn't pop up at the end of the countdown. But uh, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Give That Fan a Podcast. I'm Ryan. I'm joined, as always, by Paul Valley. We're very excited to welcome Mike Bordick onto the show in just a moment here. But first, Give That Fan a Podcast is sponsored by Birdland Sports. Josh from Section 336 has a great line of affordably priced Orioles-themed t-shirts available for purchase at birdlandsports.com. They've rolled out a ton of new designs lately, including Give That Fan a Podcast t-shirts, which are now available in orange and black. I got mine. I wore it on the show last week. It's very soft, very comfortable, very stylish. So go grab a shirt. Uh, These t-shirts are designed for fans by fans. Use promo code THATFAN at checkout for 20% off your purchase at birdlandsports.com. That's birdlandsports.com, promo code T-H-A-T-F-A-N, all one word, at checkout for 20% off your purchase. Each purchase helps support Baltimore podcasts such as ours, and they're consistently rolling out new designs. So head on over to birdlandsports.com and enter promo code THATFAN for 20% off. Did you mean to do that? I think so. (laughs) <laughs> well, let's let's go ahead and bring on Mr. Bordick. All right, everybody joining us now on Give That Fan a Podcast. He's former Orioles shortstop and broadcaster. We're thrilled to introduce Mike Bordick for the first time on the show. Mike, thanks for taking some time with us. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks a lot for having me today. Absolutely. Yeah, we- we appreciate the time, and I got to chat with you for a couple minutes uh, before Paul joined us. And uh, I have a question about 2000. That's when I was growing up as an Orioles fan. Uh, but first, the Orioles yesterday turned a triple play. It was their 15th in team history, a very exciting moment. Most triple plays, as we've seen in baseball, kind of involve a middle infielder in some capacity. The shortstop or the second baseman often gets the ball rolling with those those triple plays. Now, Mike, you exclusively played shortstop in your Orioles career. Uh, but you played over 1,700 games as a middle infielder. You were never involved in a triple play. And I, I have three questions kind of on this subject. Is the opportunity to turn a triple play something that you kind of anticipate or dream about when you're a big league infielder? Do you remember a time when you ever came close? And did you ever turn one at another level in your in your baseball career? All right. Well, let me start with the, the last question. And yes, I have. I, in, in the American Legion ball, um, I was able to turn a uh, triple play. There was a line drive hit up the middle. I, I went to my left, and I ta- there were runners at first and second. I tagged the guy out at second base because he let off, and he kind of bounced off on the line drive. So it was kind of a quick catch and tag. The guy at first base obviously took a little secondary lead. He was off a little too far, and I gunned it over to first base. So that was pretty cool to actually be a part of that. And I think any time there's a, a situation, whether it be bases loaded, runners at first and second, and there's an opportunity when a team has no outs. Uh, you have to kind of go through your mind. Okay, what am I going to do? What potentially, how could we potentially turn a triple play? Uh, I, I think you always have to be prepared for those kind of situations. Um, and I don't know why, and I don't remember if we were ever close when I played uh, turning one. Um, but uh, just just didn't come up, I guess. Maybe there were probably some close opportunities that just uh, never transpired but it was a that was a big one in last night's ball game for sure did you ever hit into one no thank god, god. <laughs> i hit in the ever every other uh depressing moment <laughs> but never a triple play that might have that might have brought me right down to the bottom Maybe. Oh, man, I, I, I can imagine if you're the guy that hits into a five four three triple play that that's just got to be something that you like never ever live down like especially like if it's because you just weren't fast enough to get the first base <laughs> oh man yeah no absolutely and you know I think most ball players and and I'm not sure if you guys played or not but when you make a jump uh, at a lower level up to a 90 foot diamond there's always a nightmare that guys have about never making it to first base or being thrown out from the right fielder uh, trying to run that 90 feet down down the line and I think that triple play as a hitter falls right into that same category. Nightmares, uh, you know, thinking you're you're a slow guy. But there are times I've seen balls hit so hard that, you know, guys can't even get halfway down the line. You have no chance. Now, actually, right. that actually makes me think of, it's not a question that we have in our notes, but they are expanding the size of the bases, I believe, starting next year from 15 inches to 18 inches. Um, and I think that this is an attempt to get more offense into the game, more steals into the game. Do you have an issue with them 
increasing the size of the bases. To me, it just seems like, and they're only going to let you throw over to a base twice, or I think the third time, the third attempt, it's a balk. Do you have issues with these things? Do you think that this is bad or good for the game? Well, I, unfortunately, I think baseball's trying to recreate itself a little bit. There are some opportunities to do some different things. I'm sorry I'm walking with my phone right now, but my dog wants a snack. And the only place I can get a snack is over here by the stairs. So uh, if, if you want to hear her barking the whole show, um, <laughs> you know, so let me, let me take care of this. All right, there's one for you, one for you. Get out of here, dogs. My okay. pooch is down in the crate, and uh, I'm, I'm nervous he's going to start barking any moment because it's, it's, <laughs> it's about lunchtime. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I guess they're doing it in some cases for safety. I guess they're doing it in other for other reasons, uh, to increase like run potential run production, stolen bases, which is kind of bizarre to me because just a few years ago when analytics broke in, the stolen base just dropped because analytically it wasn't worth it to run into an out. Now they're trying to promote offense. Well, there are ways to promote offense, in my opinion, and that's uh, create better swing habits. It's unfortunate that a generation of players has all of a sudden you know, created this launch angle. And a lot of guys are dropping their backside too soon. We're seeing injuries come of that as well. Guys getting hit in the hand and wrist. So they're trying to protect the player. Yet all of a sudden here we are getting a lot more injuries um, in that regard. I think from a philosophy that was kind of pushed into play by by analytics. Um, I, it'll be interesting, I guess, to see how the, how the bases go. I don't know that it's going to make that much of a difference, to be honest with you. I wish they'd do something with first base. And I'm glad. So I'm glad they're doing something in that regard. And I don't know why uh, that first base, running down the first baseline hasn't, why that hasn't been a, a priority rule change, you know. Um, I, I, I just don't understand that either, why a runner has to run in that box and then all of a sudden step into fair territory to hit the base. It makes absolutely no sense to me. You're risking more injury right there. Let a base runner kind of, you know, if he establishes his own baseline, then he's fine. It's the same thing that happens inside the diamond. If you're running the second base, as long as you establish a baseline, you know, you can kind of run uh, towards the base from whatever direction you want. So, uh, yeah, a lot of that stuff doesn't make much sense to me. I'm sure it'll settle right in, though. Nobody will even remember it in five or ten years. I don't think it's going to be in a situation where somebody says, oh, look at the bases are so big. It's ridiculous. It's stupid. Yeah. Uh, and then all of a sudden the next year, pull them up and, and change them back I think it'll be fine. It'll probably go uh, in many ways unnoticed. Uh, I, I think one of the big rule changes is just going to be keeping the speed of the game up, um, you know, with pitchers on the clock. So, Yeah, B, uh, BJ, goodness. I told you before the show that you and BJ Serhoff were, were my favorite players, and now I'm calling <laughs> you BJ. Uh, Mike, I, I, yeah. I wanted to ask you about the 2000 season. Um, it was when I was kind of growing up as an Orioles fan, I was just kind of figuring out, who my favorite players were, why I loved the Orioles. And obviously that was because of my dad and my grandfather. But, um, you know, growing up, you two were my guys. And part of that is because you were my favorite batting stances to imitate uh, <laughs> when I was when I was playing out at the yard or showing off to my family. But um, both of you were traded at that 2000 trade deadline. And both of you ended up returning. Ultimately, you were just that following uh, December as a free agent. Um, but Harold Baines, Charles Johnson, Will Clark, all those guys gone at the deadline. And then uh, a couple of you, like I said, came back. Now, you returned Melvin Mora in your trade, and we all know what he meant to the Orioles for the next decade or so. Um, but So that trade ended up working out pretty well for the Orioles, especially with you coming back. But I, I'm curious, when that was all transpiring, did you have any inclination that you were going to be traded or that this was going to be some type of fire sale at the deadline? And then was there any discussion before you were traded about whether or not you'd be willing to come back as a free agent? Yeah, um, well, I think there was talk about, you know, all of a sudden, since we obviously had another uh, unsuccessful season, the ability to dump some of the, the contracts um, was getting out there. So guys were starting to get moved. You mentioned some of the names. Whenever I talked to Mike Hargrove, who was the manager at that time, he said, no, you're not going anywhere. If I hear anything, I'll let you know. And as the days kept getting closer to the deadline, he continued to kind of you know, reiterate, reiterate that I was going to be there, stay in Baltimore. There wasn't going to be any kind of trade because there was nothing uh, being talked about. Well, 
one day I, I came home uh, from lunch with my wife um, before heading to the field. And back then we had the, uh, you know, phone messages in the box. <laughs> and, and it was blinking. It said like there were 32 messages on it. So I started playing it. And it was Sid Thrift, the general manager at the time. He says, hey, Mike, can you come in? Uh, I got to talk to you in the office. Just come into the warehouse. So I was like, oh, boy, something happened. And I, I drive down there. And, and obviously uh, the news was that I had gotten traded. And, yeah, it was a little disheartening. It was frustrating. I think when you, you know, you, we made Baltimore our home. We still have made it our home. You want nothing but the best for the city. Um, and, and certainly a lot of the players that were there, B.J. Serhoff included, he, he still lives here. You know, he wanted to be part of the, the, the parade down Main Street in Baltimore, uh, bringing a championship. And unfortunately, it just didn't work out um, for that group of guys. Uh, I did have an opportunity, though, to go to the playoffs in the World Series um, with the Mets uh, then in 2000. But there was never even talk of possibly coming back. As a matter of fact, I thought, you know, since I was traded, my wife and I, we ended up buying a house in Maine. I told my wife, I said, this might be it. This might be my last hurrah. Uh, we were thinking about going back home to Maine, so we purchased a home. And after that season, that's when the Orioles uh, contacted me and asked if I'd be interested in coming back. And thank God they did, because nobody else wanted me. <laughs> well, well, we're glad you did come back. And awesome. you had an excellent career, especially on the defensive side of the ball. You set the record for consecutive errorless games and consecutive errorless chances as a shortstop. And defensive metrics are not available for most of your career, but they caught the tail end. And, you know, even when you were in your, your mid-30s, the, the metrics liked you as shortstop. Um, we talked on the show a couple weeks ago about Ramon Arias and, and the defense that we've seen on the left side of the infield with, with him and Jorge Mateo. Now, Mateo has his own opportunity to take home a gold glove. But when you look at the the both the eye test and the defensive metrics of Ramon Arias at third, it, it looks like he might be, especially based on the metrics, an almost obvious choice to win the American League Gold Glove at third base this season. Um, what have you seen from Arias on the defensive side of the ball, and and what has made him so special over there at the hot corner for the O's this year? Well, when I first saw uh, Arias a few years ago, he was in the middle of the infield. So I, I think a lot of these. Uh, you know, quality young infielders typically came up as shortstops. Um, so they kind of have that innate ability to, to make a play, catch a ground ball. Third base, more of a reactionary position. But Urias, is, uh, since he has somewhat of a strong arm, can play deep, a little bit deeper, so he can cover a little bit more ground. Um, I, I just think he's settling in. I think a lot of players, it takes a little while to, to understand hitters, what their tendencies are, even your own pitching staff to anticipate a little bit better. And the more ground balls you get, the better you're going to get, period. And, and I think a lot of it has to do, too, with being challenged and pushed. Uh, Mateo certainly helps push that and make guys better on the infield. I think uh, the, the infield instructor, I've worked with him before, uh, Manzalino, and, and he certainly wants the best for these guys. So he's keeping them on their game. And at the big league level, really every infielder should, and I think they do, strive for excellence, which means when you prepare, you prepare the right way. You prepare to try to make yourself better every day. And I think a lot of these players on the Orioles this year are doing that. They bought into that. And they have gotten better, and Arias is definitely one of those players. Now, with all this in mind, I, I want to ask you to play the role of GM for a minute. Now, we, we've talked about Arias being excellent defensively at third base, Mateo the same at shortstop. Neither of them really blow you away with their offensive capabilities. But now we have Gunnar Henderson, who's here, and he's not going away. Jordan Westberg is coming soon. Joey Ortiz, maybe Kobe Mayo or not long after that. And then the Orioles just used their number one overall pick on a shortstop in Jackson Holiday. You've got Mateo under team control through the 2025 season, Arias through 2026. The team has said they're ready to spend money. Trey Turner and Dansby Swanson will be free agents. Carlos Correa, Xander Bogarts, they may opt out and become free agents as well. I know this is a lot to take in, but if you're GM, how do you manage the left side of the Orioles infield moving forward? Wow. Interesting question. And that's what kind of is uh, going to be exciting about the offseason to see. It's actually, a good problem to have. Absolutely. What direction the Orioles actually go in that regard. I will say this first and foremost. P 
pitching is of utmost importance. And I know the Orioles have pitched their tails off this year, uh, the rotation and the bullpen. But if you can take some of these talented players, like you mentioned, and there might be an opportunity to land a true number one, uh, maybe even a number two, and slot them in the rotation with means coming back eventually and some of these other arms that have produced, then you all of a sudden become a contender. Um, I'm, I never really get too caught up in position player movement. I think the fact that Elias is going out after shortstops is is kind of an old school mentality uh, because typically the shortstop on a baseball team is going to be one of the better athletes, and I think they'll have the ability to move around. Mateo can play anywhere on the field. I think Urias can play anywhere on the field. Gunnar Henderson's playing every infield position right now, and I think uh, a lot of the guys in the minor leagues have those opportunities to move around as well. They will definitely settle into an everyday position um, when, once they you know, get their feet wet in the major leagues, but I think if there's a stockpile of players, there's going to be a great opportunity to land some quality pitching. I wouldn't uh, just fill the house up and say we've got a stockpile of infielders and never do anything with them. I, I think you got to keep this fluid, keep guys moving, try to continue to improve pitching because that is the name of the game. Look at the Texas Rangers. I mean, if they are not the best example of worthless spending, I don't know what is. You get a couple of the best uh, premier hitters in the game in the middle of the infield right now. You're paying over $500 million for them, and they can't pitch. Are you kidding me? Dump that money and try to make trades to land pitching. That is the name of the game, period. And pitching is at a premium because the injury rate's going up. You need to stockpile arms. Mike, it's almost like you have access to my notes because my follow-up question to that was um, if you ask anybody – around the Orioles, what the number one priority is for this offseason, it would be to land the true number one starting pitcher. I look at their rotation um, heading into next year, and I think you can pencil in Grayson Rodriguez, D.L. Hall, uh, Tyler Wells, Kyle Bradish, and Dean Kramer in some particular order with what they have right now. And then you mentioned John Means hopefully coming back no later than June. You've got Austin Both, who's under team control through 2026. And then some guys knocking on the door in the minor leagues. I do feel like they need more starting pitching, but I'm not sure that they spend big money on a starting pitcher this offseason. I think, like you said, it might have to come in a trade. Um, do you see it more likely that they bring a starting pitcher in with a trade with that stockpile of young position players that they have? Or do you think that they are going to go out and try and spend money on something like a Carlos Rodon? Interesting, interesting uh, point. Because I do know this, too. They've saved a little bit of money, so they have access, I think. And, and Elias has come out and said that they're probably going to spend. So mm -hmm. I, I, they could run both options. You know what I mean? And I think, uh, you know, there are a couple ways to look at this. And we, we can go right back to the pitching. But also, if there are opportunities to land a proven, you know, bat, uh, oh my that, God, you've got access to my notes, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's obviously going to help as well. So I, I just think they're in a great situation. Now it's a matter of moving the pieces and, and kind of putting this puzzle together um, because they have opportunities to do both. I wouldn't be surprised if they go out and try to uh, compete and try to pay for a, a front-end pitcher. I know that it might be a little bit easier now with left field move back. Um, I think it's very attractive to pitchers. I think it's kind of shown up in the Orioles pitching that, hey, this is a safe place to play now. You make some pitches, who cares? Pitch inside a little bit. Somebody turns on you, good luck trying to hit one over the great wall out there in left field. So, um, yeah, a lot of different ways, I think, to attack this. I think they're, they have just put themselves in probably the best position in baseball, I think, organizationally to do good things this offseason. Now it's just a matter of uh, – you know, are the free agents going to be willing to take a look? Do they understand? I think a lot of teams have taken note of how the Orioles have played this year, where they position themselves. And I think we've heard people come out in public and say, wow, this is a different team. They've got a different kind of attitude. Um, you know, these guys are close, very close. And, you know, it wasn't too long ago that Toronto was kind of in that same boat. Now here they are pushing the Yankees uh, for, the, for the East title. So, um, yeah, Orioles in a good spot. And it's going to be a fun offseason for sure. I would definitely go all in on trying to land pitching, though, because uh, you can never have enough. I think too many arms are getting hurt, even though the Orioles have been very good this year, keeping guys kind of out of harm's way. I was a little bit worried about that early on in the season with some 
early exits from the starters and the bullpen just getting abused. Um, I still think they uh, are just hanging on by a thread out there. <laughs> it's amazing to me how many innings these guys have logged, but uh, it's, it's certainly been fun to watch. Do you think, so I, I, I've been highly critical at times over the last couple of months about Brandon Hyde not trusting his starting pitchers to give him that, that extra inning to get those three extra outs when you're in a playoff chase, especially when, like you said, the bullpen has been taxed. Do you think that he has maybe not trusted his starters enough to get him that extra inning, or is it more so he's doing what he has to to try to win these games? I think that's interesting. I, you know, and uh, unfortunately, I think in a lot of ways – I think analytics are making some decisions and I, who knows, I could be way off on this. And I'm not saying that Brandon Hyde is being, you know, a puppet and, and, and analytics are saying you got to pull him out right now because if he faces one more batter after 98 pitches, he gives up a three run home run. I, I just don't feel like it works that way. I think Brandon Hyde's a pretty good manager and an understander of his team and what they're capable of. I do know this: a lot of pitchers recently I've seen just shaking their head when they're coming out after, you know, a little bit earlier than expected. Mm-hmm. So there's frustration building with them because they want to be the guy to eat up innings. They want to be that starter, that proven starter that can get them deeper in the ball games. And I think that's a great sign. I, I really do. I would love for Brandon Hyde to challenge these guys a little bit and, and push them through, you know, this this because I think there's a little confrontation right there. And you got to find out what a guy's made of. And if they can't do it, listen, you, you lose their trust. Uh, that's for sure. Well, I mentioned the injuries, and I know the Orioles have been pretty lucky, uh, fortunate not to have a boatload of injuries this year. And there's a lot that has to do with that. Obviously, their strength and conditioning, their training staff, but I also think there's some luck involved. So moving forward, I think they have to be cautious, low caution to the wind, and understand that injuries could be on the horizon. So uh, starters, potentially – should work to try to get a little bit deeper. And I think this is going to be more common trend because these bullpen arms are just coming in and chunking it as hard as they can. They're, I mean, this is max effort pitching at its best. you got three hitters, and I'm going to give you all I got for three hitters. There ain't no way these arms are going to hold up, and it's proven. I mean, the injuries across the league have just skyrocketed, elbows, shoulders. Guys' arms are falling apart. So starters, if they can learn how to, you know, repeat their delivery, manage their delivery, not be max effort every time, and find ways to use this incredible repertoire they've all developed and, and get deeper into ball games. I think that would do nothing but uh, positive things for, for the Orioles, for their bullpen. It will keep guys fresher in the bullpen. They wouldn't be seen as often. I, I, I just think that's something that is going to be a trend we're going to witness. Uh, teams trying to get their starters to all of a sudden get deeper into ball games it's instead of these more, uh, it seems like, bullpen games every night where starters are going four innings, managers scared, uh, going through the lineup for a third time, so in comes the bullpen. Um, and I think guys are just throwing too much out of the bullpen. Mike, we've talked a lot about the pitching today. And you mentioned earlier about the Orioles offense and some of these swing decisions and these bad habits that these guys get into with launch angle. And the Orioles offense has been wildly inconsistent all year. And uh, Austin Hayes hasn't hit since June. Mountcastle was not Ryan Mountcastle in July and August. And I look at this lineup and the biggest glaring need to me is a legitimate threat for the middle of the order, especially with that big wall in left field. A lot of people feel uh, have a little bit of PTSD with this team and don't think that they're going to go out and spend the money it takes to get a legitimate threat in the middle of their order. I've been on the Aaron Judge train all season. He's the one guy who can beat that wall consistently in left field. Can you see this team going out there and making a huge splash for a bat this offseason? Because I think that's one thing missing for making this offense consistently great. Yeah, I think they're they're looking for one aggressively. I, I really do. And I think there was some hope that Mountcastle might be that guy. And he still could be because at the beginning of the year, he showed great strike zone discipline. He, he wasn't chasing. He was making some really good contact. He's got that 30 home run potential every year. But I think we need another one. You're right. And I would be surprised if they, they do try to go after a, a bigger, more consistent bat. 
I don't know that they're going to be able to afford Aaron Judge, though. I'll tell you that right now. You might have to sell a couple of the minor league teams to, to pay for him. I mean, he, uh, I mean, he's having a historical season. He's going to probably win the Triple Crown. It's, it's just amazing what he's doing right now. But to have that kind of bat, if you can get a 35, 40 home run guy in this lineup here in Baltimore, I, I, I think that would make uh, a huge difference in, in uh, the potency of this Oriole offense. You know, we, we've we talked a lot about the current team and uh, there's there's been a change lately in the the, the broadcasters. Um, I think, you know, we, we have Kevin Brown now, Ben McDonald doing the regular play by play, a couple other people mixed in there. Uh, but I, I wanted to ask you, because I think all Orioles fans want to know if you can tell us, do you keep in touch with Gary Thorne? And if so, <laughs> how is he doing? I do. I Well, you know, a couple times a year, I'll, I'll reach out and see how he's doing. I get a Christmas card from him. He, he's doing great. I, I love Gary Thorne. He's a main guy. Um, I loved working with, with him. He's a Hall of Fame uh, broadcaster, in my opinion. Um, and I loved, obviously, like most of us, and I don't know about you guys, but when he would call hockey games, I was just blown away at how he could whip off a, a Russian name or a Czechoslovakian name and, and just keep it going throughout the whole game. And then, of course, when he's calling an Orioles game, sometimes he, he'd call like Manny Machado, Manny Machardo, and things yeah. like that. I'm thinking, Gary, how the heck can you screw this name up yet whip off a Czechoslovakian's name like that? So good stuff. He's got always had a great sense of humor, uh, and he's doing really, really well. Uh, he's missed, I think, in, in – uh, you know, hearing his voice, how he brings the game to life. Um, yeah, he, he's one of the greats of all time, and it was an honor, certainly, working with him. And if I was the GM, and I know you guys posed, posed that question a little bit earlier on the player uh, development side of things, but I would bring Gary Thorne back, that's for sure. I think he's a great voice for the Orioles and, and a fan favorite, for sure. My, uh, my favorite name that uh, Gary just couldn't seem to say was Edwin Ankarnarciar. <laughs> that, that was that was my absolute favorite. Now, yeah. my, I've, I've I've talked to you on a number of shows, whether it was Glenn Clark Radio or my show, The Bat Around, and I've never had the chance to ask you this question. You came over here in 1997. They brought you over here to play shortstop, and you're moving Cal Ripken over to third base. Cal's not going to move to third base for just anybody, right? And I've always said that that people worry about the fragility of the mindset of a major league baseball player a little too much because you have to have some mental tenacity and mental toughness to get to the major league level. But how much pressure did you feel? How much did you feel under the gun to produce and perform knowing that you're pushing the Iron Man, who's a legend in Baltimore, out of his shortstop position and back over to third base? Was there like like a nail-biting experience for you, or did you just kind of take it in stride? Well, I still kind of throw up in my mouth when I think about it because, uh, you know, there were times when I was trying to make this decision, one of the biggest ones obviously in my life at that time about coming to Baltimore, that uh, I, I had to really question it. What, I mean, what's the point? Why do you want to put yourself in harm's way? Uh, there isn't a lot of good that can come of this unless only you win the World Series, and that was certainly my hope. That was a driving force. You know, the Orioles won in 96 they were poised to go back in 97. I had images of a dynasty, much like the Oakland A's team that I came up with. You know, they had gone a three straight World Series, won one of them. It just seemed like you're going to win forever. And I, looking at the Orioles from afar, I felt like they were that team. I didn't even think about the Yankees. I just thought, my gosh, look at the Baltimore Orioles right now. Look how loaded they are. Great veteran players. A lot of great young players coming up. This could be a moment where... I win a World Series, and I'm, I'm part of a great team. And uh, and I think, too, like you said, that uh, tenacity, a little bit of mental fortitude, I think most players look for and accept challenges. And I was at that point in my career as well. Um, the Oakland A's were going through some uh, new ownership. Uh, they certainly didn't have as competitive a team as they had in the early 90s. LaRusa left, McGuire left, Steinbach left. So a lot of the stud players left Oakland, and there was an opportunity for me to get back into that winning kind of feel. Truly the only way to play Major League Baseball is when you're in a playoff 
hunt or feel like you have an opportunity to win. And it kept me on my toes for years. I mean, even through uh, 2000, before I got traded, I thought we had enough talent and we should have been in the postseason every year. It's just uh, mind boggling to me why we did. So I kind of accepted that challenge. I, I Then I looked forward to it. I wanted to uh, embrace it. And I did. I mean, I worked my butt off. I, I wanted to come in and, and prove that I belonged here in Baltimore, that the words that Pat Gillick uh, were blowing to me were, weren't just, you know, to make me feel good. Like he truly believed that. He was a great salesman too, by the way. He, he straight up told me, he said, listen, Mike, this is going to happen with or without you. We want you to be the shortstop in Baltimore. And, uh, you know, he made me feel really good. There were a lot of people that didn't make me feel good about it, which I think kind of made me a little bit uneasy for the first, you know, month and a half of the season. Spring training went great. It was an awesome team. I loved meeting our teammates. I made great friends that I still have today. The bonds were kind of built right there. But the start of the season was really rough, getting into Camden Yards. And, and uh, I just put too much undue pressure on myself, I think. And I, and I struggled. I struggled catching the ball. I struggled hitting. I hit like under 200 for about the first month and a half. And I know not, nowadays it seems like hitting under a 200 is commonplace. You know, like I don't know how these guys sleep at night. I was losing my mind. I was trying so hard to do well that I couldn't. My athleticism, nothing could show on the field. One day Sam Palazzo put his arm around me. He said, man, you got to relax. You're going to have a heart attack out here. Just relax and play the game. And it kind of took me a while, but I did. I ended up having a stronger uh, two-thirds of the season, felt better defensively as well. And we had a great team, and winning really solved all problems. We were wire to wire in 97. Uh, I, I only wish that we would have hoisted the trophy. That team should have. Um, and I'm going to con continue to add to this story a little bit because uh, I'm on this this 97 team. It drives me crazy because we got beat by the Indians. Marquise Grissom hit a home run off Armando, and so did uh, Fernandez hit a home run off Armando. And Hargrove came over to be the manager, and we were talking about that playoff series. It was so good. He said, oh, yeah, we had Armando's pitches, and I almost I just wanted to tackle him and punch him in the nose, man. I was like, are you oh, kidding man. me? He said Armando was tipping his slider. Grissom hit a slider, and so did Hernandez, and uh, it just kills me. And every time I think about it, it just, like, rips my heart out. My dad's I, not going to like hearing that story. I, I, <laughs> I got to tell you, man, that 97 team is still my, my favorite team of all time in my lifetime. Um, and the opportunity that was there, Mike Mussina with one of the all-time great postseason series, 15 innings pitched in two starts, 25 strikeouts, allows one run, doesn't win either of those games. And to me, I think that was the best opportunity, including 2014, for this team to win a World Series in my, in my lifetime. And I have to ask you this because I swear he made contact with the pitch. Omar Vizquel with the bunt that went back to the backstop that scored the game-winning run uh, yeah. in that, at Camden Yards. I swear, I swear to the day I die, he fouled that ball off. There's yeah. no way he didn't. Did I he know. foul that ball? I he feel fouled. like he did too. Yeah, I There's feel no like way he, did he didn't. I know. Yeah, there, that was crazy, man. Yeah, that was an unbelievable uh, turn of events, obviously, um, there in Cleveland when that happened. So, yeah, some frustrating uh, moments, obviously, in that 97 playoffs against the Indians. But, uh, man, if I think about that too much, I, I, I lose sleep. I ended up drinking so much whiskey because of that dang shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I think a lot of I, I think a lot of people did. I was a little I was a little young at that point to be drinking the whiskey, but I was the age I am now. I I, I probably would have been incoherent by the end of the series. Right. Yeah. I Hearing hear. you guys talk about that '97 team, I I really wish I was old enough to understand what was going on at that. I was I was Incredible just barely team. too young to to understand what was happening. I you know I, my dad would take me to games and. He has video of me at eight months old watching Cal Ripken circle the warning track after breaking Lou Gehrig's record. And so I, I was always an Orioles fan. I just I wish I had a recollection of that 97 team. But but Mike, you, you talk about, you know, Sam Perlazzo comes over to you while you're you're in the middle of probably the worst offensive slump of your career and saying, you know, relax, you're going to be all right. And I, I think about Austin Hayes, who seems like he's very much in his head at this point. Hasn't been able to hit, like Paul said, really since he hit for the cycle in June. He, he's been a, a completely different baseball player. When you're in that much of a funk and it's 
obviously baseball is, as Yogi Berra said, 90% mental and the other half is physical. Mm-hmm. When you're in that kind of funk, is that something that, that a player can typically break out of on their own? Or does it take someone like Sam Perlazzo coming over and saying, hey, man, you're going to be all right? Well, sometimes it definitely takes a, another voice. Um, I, I think a lot of times the problem in the game of baseball is there are too many voices. Hey, you're dropping your hands. Hey, you're striding too hard. You, you know, stay back. You're not hitting the ball to right field. And, and whenever you step in the box, you, you just don't have a clear mind. You're thinking about everything else other than seeing the ball and hitting the ball. So simplifying the game um, is the only way to go about it. I, I think at the major league level, um, what I ended up doing and telling myself every day was just to hang my hat on my preparation. If I went out and I did my ground balls the right way, I felt like I was trying to make myself better every day doing that. If I went in the batting cage with Terry Crowley or whoever, whatever hitting coach I had, and I did it the right way, as professional as I could, and tried to work towards excellence on every swing, trying to find my balance, if I studied on the opposing pitcher, when I crossed the lines, and it took a while for me to kind of learn that, I would just let it go. I would just compete and play. It is easier said than done. I mean, baseball, in my opinion, at at the highest level, is all mental. I mean, you have to have physical abilities, but you have to find ways to control yourself mentally so you don't get too worked up in certain situations. It's funny because Adley Rutschman kind of talked about that in last night's ball game, how he had to kind of take some breaths and pull himself back because it was such an intense situation. He didn't want to try to do too much. I think everybody wants to drive a ball off the wall or hit a home run in those type of situations, but it's about staying to your game plan, keeping your hands inside the baseball and coming up with a good at bat and a good swing on the ball. And uh, ultimately that's what it comes down to finding ways to mentally stay in control and visualization certainly helps that Uh, the preparation you put in helps that where you can just cross the lines and play. But there, I think a lot of teams, most teams now have mental coaches um, where you could potentially be like hypnotized. You can have programs that you talk to yourself through mental training. Um, It's become a huge part of the game. I think um, some of the greatest athletes in the world, you know, even 50 years ago in the Olympics, really got into visualization and mental training. And I think Baseball has always been kind of behind when it comes to that. Baseball was behind in weight training. Baseball was behind in learning how to Olympic lift and become the best athlete you possibly could be. And I think they're finally starting to catch up in a lot of areas. And I think that mental kind of training is one that they're finally starting to um, kind of come to the forefront in. But it's up to players to allow them in. That's the hardest part for a player to sit back and say, okay, I'm going to go talk to that psychiatrist. And maybe he can give me a game plan, much like my strength and conditioning coach gives me a game plan to make myself bigger and stronger, maybe a nutritional coach as well. There are mental, um, you know, programs that will help guys kind of control their mind through proper self-talk. And I think that's the kind of thing that can calm Austin Hayes down. I give lessons. I talk to kids all the time. Their biggest thing is the fear of failure when they step in the box. And I said, listen, if you have anxiety, Step out, take a deep breath through your nose, long breath out, blow it out. If you still don't feel good, do it again. This is, this is you, man. This is your time in the box. Feel relaxed, feel comfortable to let your muscles fire. And listen, Austin Hayes has incredible skill. He has great ability. And it's just a matter of him. He's got so much want and try and desire that he's just trying too hard, man. Mm. Mike Flanagan used to say that all the time. Try less. Just try less. Every major league player has skills off the charts. Mm-hmm. Off the charts. They don't have to try harder to be good. They have to try less and let their minds take over and understand it's all about execution. Proper swing, proper balance and timing when they step in the in the box. Yeah, I, I like that. I, I have to ask, and I, I don't want you to think that I wasn't listening to your answer because I was glued to every word, but one of your dog. I don't have a dog, so I know it's not mine. There is a dog that's very faintly barking in the background. I'm just curious whose that is. Which which one of your dogs is unhappy? Oh man, I got this. My wife came home with a, <laughs> a chihuahua. You know what? A oh chihuini boy! Is? Oh no! One of those like Dotson and Chihuahua mixes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that little run out the back barking. Now my dog, 
Emmy is a big, uh, she's a Newfie doodle. Oh, wow. Part Newfoundland, part, uh, you know, full size poodle. Mm. And my wife said, well, she needs a friend. So she went and got, we can't, I, I guess his name is, <laughs> I guess his name is Jax. He's just a little, yeah. He's a Chihuahua, all right. My wife thinks Chihuahuas are so cute, and they are my least favorite dog of all time, man. Like, we ended up, she wanted a Corgi. I was like, no. She wanted a Chihuahua. I was like, no. We ended up getting a Yellow Lab, and no regrets. He is awesome. We, I, I wanted a big dog, and we have two cats, and they're both girls. I have the wife. I was the only guy. I'm like, we're getting a big dog, and it's got to be a boy. And nice. that's what we got, so I'm not too outnumbered anymore. All right. And he's awesome. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I'm I'm a cat guy as well at this point, but once once we get married, I'm thinking a, a dog might have to enter the picture. Uh, yeah, yeah. Now, Mike, before we let you go, you you mentioned to me before the show that that okay. you've been very busy with your nonprofit and this new program called Alloy Sports. Do you want to tell yeah. us a little bit about what you've been up to with those? Yeah, thanks for letting me talk about it. Yeah, first of all, my nonprofit's called the League of Dreams. Um, started right here in Catonsville, Maryland. Uh, Frank Caleric. Uh, started at Frank Caleric was a minor league player uh, for the Oakland A's. His son actually won the World Series or helped win a World Series with the Los Angeles Dodgers. Adam Caleric went to Catesville High School and then on to the University of Maryland. He's still playing uh, in the Oakland A's organization, but he started about 20 years ago. Gives special needs kids opportunities to play baseball and softball. We've expanded into other sports. We've got great partners. Uh, Cowork and Senior Foundation has sponsored us for a number of years now to give us opportunities to give kids with special needs chances to, to play uh, baseball. We've been at um, Oriole Park at Camden Yards for some events. We just did a huge event at the Maryland School for the Blind. So we help kids with any special need um, enjoy sports. So I love it. It's one of the most rewarding things I've ever done in my life. Uh, it's volunteer-based, so we get teams of kids to come out. And, and help instruct and help the kids enjoy their experience on the field. Many days you see tears from parents because their kids never get those opportunities to actually play and enjoy sports. And when their peers are on the sidelines giving them high fives and things like that, it just lights up the world. So I am so honored and, and truly humbled to be a part of that program. And we're continuing to try to expand and give more kids opportunities. Certainly doing a great job here in Maryland, but we'd like to uh, push it and hopefully do some things nationally. That's what our dreams are. So uh, it's super fun to be a part of that. Thank you for asking. Yeah. Alloy Sports uh, is kind of a different side of things. It's a research-based betting um, site that helps betters, and I'm not a better uh, really, but I have great friends that started this program, and they'd asked if I'd help. Um, talk about it, help kind of promote it, because initially it came out as a potential scouting tool. And when everybody in the analytic field, as far as general managers of baseball, thought that they were just, they wanted no part of an outsider coming in and, and giving them analytics, we moved on to something else. And we, we tried our hand in this in the gambling site because that's kind of going uh, uh, like crazy right now. So we developed an app. Um, to help enhance betters opportunities. And it basically what it does, it creates an algorithm and boom, it shows up uh, what percentage you have to win on that certain game you might be looking at. You got to check it out, man, alloysports.com. We just got our app developed for the NFL season. So a, a lot of fun right there, but uh, it's pretty cool to be involved with that. A couple Baltimore guys developed it. They they're right from Pikesville. So uh, it's fun when local guys are doing good things. Awesome. Well, well, we'll have to check it out. Now, I, here, here's a, a story for you. My my grandmother, who actually ended up passing away last Sunday, she babysat Frank Caleric when he was a little tacker. So my, my family has a, a good relationship with All Frank. Right. We, we see him at church every once in a while. And Great. I got to you know chat with Adam a little bit. Frank actually helped. Uh, he, he had lunch with me at Panera one day. Uh, I was preparing to move out to Arizona to pursue baseball scouting and use my my family connections to reach out to frank and uh nice. he, he met up with me gave me some great advice so i'm, I'm glad that you two are involved in that project and you know i'm very familiar with league of dreams thanks to him so uh great. very very happy to see you involved in all that awesome well i'm glad you know frank you know how good of a person he is really great the man. best yeah really really is one of the best uh paul did you have anything else before we uh before we let him go 
No, man, this was this was a great interview. We really appreciate you taking the time. And I do love when uh, former professional athletes from Baltimore um, are still giving back to the community and, and, and using their, their celebrity to help with important things. So I appreciate you doing everything that you do. I, a lot of times I'll ask you to come on a show and you say you can't because you're doing something for the kids. And I just think that that's so cool, man. So I appreciate everything that you did in an Orioles uniform and everything you've continued to do after. Well, thank you. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, I know we, we took up a, a nice chunk of your afternoon here, but thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we'll let you go. Paul and I are going to stick around and, and talk just a little bit about the, the recent Blue Jays series. But again, thank you so much. It was, it was a privilege to be able to chat with you. And uh, please enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, guys. Thanks a lot for having me. And uh, you guys, too. And let's uh, keep pushing those O's. Hopefully they get a shot at the postseason. Hopefully. Thanks, Mike. We'll talk soon. All right. Love guys. to see it. Take care. See you. All right, that was a lot of fun. A, a very, very exciting moment for me. I mentioned he was he was one of my favorites growing up, and uh, you know, being able to to chat with him and kind of you know talk about whatever, talk about baseball. It's it's uh, pretty exciting. So I, yeah, I appreciate yeah. you reaching out. You used your used your connections on this one. Yeah, no, Bordy is um he's always gracious and he's always willing. If he has the time to do it, he's always willing to, to come on and talk some baseball, which is which is really cool. Nice to get some some confirmation that. Omar Rizkel fouled that bunt to take. There's no if you look at the pitch and the way the ball went back to the backstop. There's no way he didn't foul that ball off, and it ended up costing the Orioles a ball game. And the fact now hearing that Mike Hargrove said that they knew what pitches Armando Benitez was throwing that is infuriating. I wasn't on the team, and it's infuriating because that's the best Orioles team I've ever seen, and that team 100% should have won a World Series. They were the best team in baseball. They had a bad September, but Wire to wire, they win 98 games. Mike Mussina, I'm telling you, his, it was one of the historic postseason performances, those two starts in the ALCS. and It gives me heart palpitations to talk about it. But Bordy is just an awesome guy. And I remember, because I was, I was a kid, I was in middle school during that. That just shows how much older than Ryan I am. But um, <laughs> I, I was in middle school in that 97 season. I remember, you know, back then you're, you're a kid and you, you see Ken Griffey and Barry Bonds and Mark McGuire and you're thinking everybody should hit over 300 with over 40 homers and drive in 140, right? And I never, as a kid, I didn't appreciate Mike Bordick's game. You know, um, I think that first season in Baltimore, he hit 238. And I'm like, man, because I was, I was a little kid and my favorite player was Ken Griffey Jr. As an adult, I look back at his numbers and this was a guy that would hit 260, 270 routinely. He didn't strike out. He played gold glove caliber defense. He'd hit 10 to, tw- 10 to 20 home runs. He was a really solid ball player, a ball player that I would take on any team that I that, uh, at this point in my life. And I wish I had appreciated his game more when I was watching him play than I did, uh, than I did at that age because he was just a hell of a ball player. And you have to be a damn good ball player to move Cal Ripken off the shortstop. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, I, I actually wanted to ask him, and then we ended up getting sidetracked, and I, I didn't get a chance. But uh, you know, Ryan Miner ended up taking over for Cal the, when when his streak ended at third mm-hmm. base for the Orioles, and I, I wanted to ask, and I, I kind of wish, looking back, that I had if if Ryan Miner ever reached out to Mike or even just talked about it later on, because Ryan Miner was a, a, a minor league instructor and and coach and manager for a while, while Bordick was a broadcaster and a uh, you know, he filled in as a coach here and there as well. Just curious to know if they ever joked about taking over for Cal in their respective spots or if, if Ryan Miner reached out to him at all for mentorship or to let him know, hey, I'm freaking out. How do I handle this? Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it was nice to to get Bordick's perspective on that. And, you know, it sent him, like he said, into a, a pretty big offensive slump. And then once he settled in, he was he was able to continue doing his job as a professional and so a, a cool story there. But, Paul, the Orioles dropped two out of three in Toronto. It was another must-win series that the Orioles did not win. It's been a common theme over the last couple of weeks. Seattle, though, has lost three straight against the Angels. They played them again on Monday and somehow are now just four games ahead of the Orioles. But their schedule is a bunch of bad teams for the rest of the season. I I know I've tried to stay optimistic on this show. I've laid out possibilities that the Orioles might be able to gain a few games. I think it's over. Yeah, and you've been saying that for a couple weeks now. I've been saying it for a couple of weeks, and those I I look back 
at the series that you have to win, that you have to sweep. And when they went into that that four-game series against Toronto where they got swept in that doubleheader to start the series, you know, the previous weekend, Toronto was playing Pittsburgh and they swept. The Orioles were playing the A's with a chance to sweep that Sunday and they lost 5 to nothing. And that should have been the writing on the wall right there. You know, the, the Orioles, they, they lost a one-game series to, to Boston. They lost a one-game series to the Cubs. Um, they lost two of three to Boston uh, the following weekend after the Toronto series. These are, these are, and then, you know, losing two of three again in Toronto, they've lost, um, what, six of the last eight games against Toronto or maybe, or yeah, six of the last eight games against Toronto. You have to be able to at least split there if you want any shot. And then you look at the, you look at the schedule the rest of the way, the Mariners don't play a single team above 500 the rest of the season. You know, and Toronto's going to go play Tampa Bay. You're chasing both of those teams. Even if they split, um, you know, you're not gaining any ground. You've really, you're four games back at Seattle. doesn't look like uh, – like they if, if they fall, it would be an all-time collapse because based on how easy their schedule looks. You have to go in and sweep Detroit, which I think they can do. I don't know if they will. Uh, but they need to and they should. And then you have four at home against – uh, well, actually, Detroit's Detroit's in, at home, right? They're, yeah, that's, that that yeah. one starts Monday. Yeah, yeah. So they have that three game series against Detroit. You got to sweep that, and you got to find a way to win two or three games against Houston, which I don't know if that's likely. You know, they had an opportunity to sweep Houston in Houston. They had Verlander on the ropes. That's another game that that they let slip through their fingertips. Um, have to have the ability to go win some of those games because then after that. You got four with Boston and three with New York before you end the season with three against Toronto. It doesn't look good. It, it, it does not look good moving forward. What is that? Fourteen of seventeen games. Uh, the, the fourteen of seventeen games against teams that are that are giving you trouble this year. Yeah. And those are it, the final fourteen games. Is the three yeah. game set against Detroit is next up. Yeah, it, it's it's hard to um to imagine this team making the playoffs. Crazier things have happened. The crazier things have absolutely happened. But it's going to have to take some a, a couple of miracles for it to happen. So I'm trying to convince myself that just watching this team play as well as they have all year and have an opportunity to end the season with a winning record is what I want. That's really what I want to focus on because otherwise I'll drive myself nuts thinking about what could have been and what should have been. You know, I think that there were some games that they that they let get away from them. Yeah, you know, speaking of miracles, the Orioles somehow, in in a weird turn of events, they won their their quote unquote punt lineup game on Sunday against the Blue Jays after dropping the first two. Uh, Manoa was on the mound for Toronto. He pitched well, but he avoided Ryan Mountcastle, who was hit by pitch uh, right above his elbow in Game Two. Missed Game Three. Jesus Aguilar took over at first base and contributed. Yeah, he was he was fine. Uh, now I didn't get to watch much of the Orioles game yesterday. I actually worked the uh, the Jimmy's tailgate, mm-hmm. and uh, so I was I was there down in Baltimore at 5 a.m. and ended up sleeping through Sunday night football last night, and it was a whole thing. So I I haven't been too in tune with the Orioles this weekend. I, I watched when I could, but it, it was nice to see the Orioles take Game Three at least not get swept just for the sake well, of pride. Aguilar was a hero. In, in that game, they yeah. were down three one in the eighth. He hits the home run, and then he gets the the run scoring base hit in the ninth to right. give them the five three lead. And they needed all three of those runs because, oh man, George Springer. I was watching, it. and yesterday's Orioles game was the saving grace um, that made me not hurt as much about the <laughs> Ravens' loss. And we will not talk about. Uh, I refuse to talk about it. What um, Ravens' loss? Right. What, what happened? No, nothing. Nothing. Mm-hmm. Let's not worry about it. Last but I checked, George, it was thirty five fourteen. Yeah, that's, right? that's how I turned the game, the game off at then, right? up 21. Yeah. Um, uh, George Springer hit a bomb to center yeah. field. And I'm like, oh, my God, he just tied the game. Mullins, as close as, as Springer was to having that be a game-tying home run, is as close as Mullins was to catching it. It was that close. Um, ended up getting out of the inning and getting out of the game without giving it up. But talk about heart palpitations after what happened to the other Baltimore team that day. But the Orioles were were the saving grace, so it was, it was nice to get a win there. So you know, hopefully Mountcastle's back in the lineup. But if not, maybe you feel a little bit better about. I mean, Aguilar his last two his last two starts has uh, four hits and a couple of big RBIs. So um, hopefully that's a sign of things to come here. Yeah, let's hope so. And you know, if the Orioles can finish strong, give us a little bit of momentum going into the off season. I think that that bodes well for the team moving forward. Oh, the lineup came out about ten minutes ago. 
And uh, Mount Castle is the DH, and Aguilar is batting fifth. Um, he's, he's DH hitting third, and Aguilar is batting fifth, playing first base. Okay, so good to see Mount Castle back in the lineup. Rushman back behind the plate. Bumped Henderson down to six after hitting cleanup yesterday. I I can see that. I oh, keep he, him... cl- he hit cleanup yesterday? I, had no I idea. believe so. Unless, unless they amended the lineup, I, I saw him hitting fourth. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Again, the, the it's, a, it's a Sunday in September, and the Orioles aren't playing their best baseball. All eyes are generally on the Ravens game at that point. It must be. I guess we're against the lefty for, for Detroit. Hayes is leading off. Mullins is eighth. Um, I imagine that it probably is. I do like, if it is, if it is, I do like that he's keeping, um, it's Tyler Alexander. I do. Yeah, he's I a lefty. Do, uh, three and 10 with a 535 ERA. I do like that he's keeping Mullins in that lineup. I would have liked to have seen, especially after getting the big hit, uh, yesterday to get, to get the inning going. Um, I do would like to, to have seen Kyle Stowers because he's raked against lefties his entire pro career. I would have liked to have seen him get it, get into the lineup, but you know, the, I, he's a lefty I, facing a lefty. He can't play. Uh, yeah, I, I've I've been saying this on Twitter and on the podcast. I don't think that whoever is calling the shots knows that Stowers has reverse splits in his minor league career. I, I I'm starting to think that they really just don't know, or they they don't trust him to replicate they, that at the bigs. They have to know. They, I, I'm sure that they do know. There's no way they. Don't, I mean, yeah, right? obviously yeah. they do. It's just but the, like, the decision the, making is is flustering. There, there's there's got to be something in his game, something in his swing. Maybe they see a hole in his swing since he got to the big league level that suggests that he will not have the same success. Um, I'm very interested to see what they. They're never going to tell us what they have him doing in the off season, but I'm very interested to see come spring what he's worked on in the off season because I think. Stowers has the potential to be a 250-260 hitter with 25 to 30 home run power. And if you can bat him seventh in your lineup next year and he can put up those kinds of numbers, that's I, I believe in Stowers as that kind of player. And I'd like to have seen him get more opportunities at the end of this season to show that he is that player. We'll, we'll see how it goes, but um, I, I agree with you. I'd like to see him in the lineup against lefties. Yeah, I think he at least deserves that shot after you know both each of the last two seasons, including 2021 when he shared minor league player of the year with Adley Rushman, just absolutely raked lefties. Yeah. And that's not to take away from his abilities against right-handed pitching, but you know at some point you got to give the guy a chance to hit left-handed big league pitching, and to this point they haven't, and it's it's incredibly frustrating because I think he could be a huge piece of this lineup if he was given regular playing time. And, and, I, and I'll, I'll tell you, man, um, you mentioned that they won their punt lineup game. And, and I am, I'm pretty damn okay with what we, what you considered a punt lineup yesterday. Um, yes. When, when, it, they, when, it, when it gets, you know, when Bavra and Aguilar are the guys that are in your lineup, um, I can live with a lineup like that because I, I believe in, in uh, Bavra's bat to ball ability and his ability to get on base. Everybody goes through slumps and he's adjusting to major league pitching to see those guys get in the lineup, I, I, I'm okay with that lineup on a day where you're resting some guys. It, it's it's the lineups where you have, you know, the guys who are hitting under 200 at at the, at the big league level, and you're playing three of them in in the same lineup on a yeah. Sunday when you need to win a series or sweep a series. That's where I have the issue. Yesterday's lineup, I looked at, it, I was like, you know what, I can live with this. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's especially more reasonable, I guess, when. Mountcastle, who is going to be in the middle of your lineup every day, is hurt and can't go. It's mm-hmm. it's more you know you you can look at it that way and say you know they weren't it wasn't as egregious as as other lineups that we've seen, like you said. Let me let that, me ask you that a, I agree with. Let me ask you a question regarding Mountcastle and Jesus Aguilar. Aguilar, um, he got off to a slow start when he got here, but he's been hitting the ball a lot better. Uh, this is a guy who last year had a really nice season. Really, he had 23 homers, drove in over 90. He had a really nice season. He's had success at the big league level. Can you see the Orioles kind of signing him maybe to a minor league deal with an invite to spring training or to a major league, a low money major league deal for next season, having him be a DH backup first baseman type? So you know that you have a guy that when Mountcastle needs a day off, that you can put into that lineup or you can DH him and know that you're not putting in somebody like. No offense to the guy, but somebody like Tyler Nevin to take over those duties. I would love to see maybe them bring Aguilar back and have him play his way off the team. What are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I, I'm with you. Uh, I think if the Orioles want another vibes guy, a la Rugnet Odor, mm-hmm. uh, I think Aguilar is, is a perfect player for that, especially considering, you know, you, you talk about Tyler Nevin and there's there's no one really knocking on the door to grab that backup first base job, which is why the Orioles, I think, have had Anthony Santander take some grounders there in practice and, and Gunnar Henderson got a couple starts there at AAA. They don't have a true backup first baseman. And mm-hmm. if, if Aguilar can, you know, hit a decent amount, I mean, he was, he was an all-star, I think 2018. That's not very, he very a long really ago. Good year in 2018. He, yeah. Really good year. And, and a, a very fun guy. I mean, you can, if you YouTube Jesus Aguilar, he's, you know, having fun with Ozzy Albies and, you know, Matt Joyce and having, having a great time on the baseball field. He's a great vibes guy, and if the Orioles want someone else like that on the roster, sure. As long as the the only way I would not be okay with that is if he's struggling to hit 200 and still starts 130 games. Yeah, and and, and that's the thing. I think at this point in Aguilar's career, uh, uh, maybe a minor league deal with an invite to spring training or a low yeah. dollar big league deal is really the best that he can hope for. And if he gets I, an opportunity to do that on a young contending ball club. I think he'd sign that deal and you're not, and you're telling him, look, you're probably not going to play 130 games. You might play 90 or a hundred, but you know, I, I don't think that he should be your everyday DH, but that's a quality guy to have. That you can bring off the bench to DH twice a week, play first base on Sunday. I think that's, that's a really nice option to have. And I think that that's an option that a lot of winning ball clubs would have. Yes. And I think there's very little risk in, in taking on a guy like Aguilar to a small contract. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that can only benefit you, um, like I said, unless he becomes the next Rugnetta door where he's he's still playing in September despite not having good offensive numbers. But yeah, it's, it's every every week I have to take a dig. <laughs> I, I do it too, and I always feel bad. Somehow I end up doing it on every show I'm on every single week. Um, and it's funny because Rich Dubroff was on 105.7 A Fan the other day, and he was talking about you know Odor since the beginning of August has been has been really bad. His numbers have been really bad. And I went and looked at his numbers, and his batting average since August 1st was only three points lower than the season batting average. He was hitting 199 at that point, and his batting average since August 1st was 196. But his on-base percentage was 33 points higher than the season on-base percentage since August 1st. So I thought it was interesting that he was saying that those are he's been really bad since August 1st. He's been basically the same player he's been all year. I mean, And, and that's the thing. There was an 11-game stretch where he had, he had an 11-game hitting streak in April and May where he was not awful. But aside from that 11-game stretch, he's been really bad all year. But I digress. Yeah, I'm 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 ready to be done. That's the one the one thing you may have mentioned this on the show. I know I said it on Twitter a, a couple days ago. But the one thing that's making me comfortable with the Orioles not making the playoffs this year is that it just means the Rugnet Odor era will end a little earlier than it would have had the Orioles made a playoff I, run. I tweeted it out on Saturday because um, he came up with runners on. Uh, I think it was second and third and one out. And I I was a, I was literally about to tweet, cue the infield pop out in three, two, one. And he popped out to shortstop before I could finish the tweet. And so yeah. I erased the tweet and I said, 18 more games, 18 more games until I never have to think about Ruth Neto Dort ever again. And, and, and look, I'm sure, he's a, I'm sure he's a great guy. I just don't want him on my baseball team. We should have. We, we, I think Taron Vavra next time needs to do a better job of trying to interfere with Bo Bichette catching that pop up without actually interfering. Mm-hmm. And I, I say that mostly in jest, but Vavra did his best to keep his foot on the bag while staying out of his way. I say stand your ground, make him mm-hmm. make him beat you to the ball because that was a, a tough play. Bichette was still able to make the catch, kind of falling over Vavra a little bit. But uh, yeah, I, the the infield pop up is something that we see coming with him. At least Ever. once a game. Oh, no, it's, dude, it's like if he's not striking out, he's popping out to an infield. Yeah, I've especially hit so many weak pop ups to the infield in all my life. Especially lately, it's been it's been incredibly frustrating. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and especially in a two zero count, which again has been a trend with him. He gets ahead in the count. Mm-hmm. He swings at an ill advised pitch or a good pitch and still manages to pop it out. Uh, nonetheless, we, I, like I said, we do this every week. We go on a Rugnado door tangent. I'm ready to be done with it. Yeah. If if Aguilar can fill that role while providing better offense next season, I'm all for it. Let the kids play. Uh, that, that That's all I've got, really, unless there was anything you wanted to add. 
No, nah, man. I, look, it's it, it's been a fun season. We're only about two weeks out from uh from it being over. Um, look, stranger things have happened. They've got an opportunity in front of them. Only four games back, uh, and, and they've got they, they they've got to go win some ball games. And I'm hoping that maybe yesterday's win, uh, another come from behind victory. Maybe this team is like, you know what, we're not going down without a fight. Because I was before yesterday's game. I the way they played this month. I was even questioning, are they going to get to 81 wins looking at the schedule that they have? Um, and that would be heartbreaking if they have played this well and still managed to not uh, be a 500 or above ball club at season's end. I, I, I think that, that, that they've, got, they've got the ability to maybe still get to 80, 83 to 85 wins. But hopefully they can go out there and do even more than that because I don't think either one of us are expecting it. No, definitely not. But it's it's nice to see that they finally started to turn a corner and hopefully they carry that into next season and, and start legitimately competing where we're not in the middle of September saying they've probably fallen out of the race. Uh, thank you to Mike Bordick for joining the show. It was a great interview, a lot of yeah. fun talking with him. Thank you, as always, to Derek and Tony at Utah Street Report for hosting the podcast. We'll be going live next week on the Orioles Fan Problems Twitter account. Hopefully I can get some of you to care a little more than you have to this point. I texted Paul last week and said, I have 17,000 followers and I can't get people to care about the podcast, which I think is normal as you're, you're kind of just starting a project, mm -hmm. but uh, hopefully we can get some more people involved. Please subscribe to our YouTube. Uh, I'm going to create, I think a link tree where instead of having to tweet out all the different links, I can just tweet one link and it will have links within that wherever you want to listen to the podcast, wherever you want to watch it. But we will be going live starting next week, so stay in tune for that. And uh, thank you, as always, to Paul for, for hosting this with me. And we'll see you next week on Give That Fan a Podcast.